0: To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. Welcome to the Well Church Sermons. head that way. If you don't own a Bible, that's okay. You can just look at the screens or you can visit the back tables where we have copies of scripture that you can just take home with you. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 15, the first 11 verses, and then we'll get after the Lord this morning. The word of the Lord reads this way, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to be circumcised, then, or excuse me, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that in this moment, as we talk about salvation, as we talk about who can be welcomed into the fellowship of the brothers and sisters, as we talk about what it means to have uh, a relationship with you, would you give clarity in place of confusion? Would you give security in place of doubt? Would you give love for Christ in place of apathy? And would you give us a hunger for your word and a desire to know you because we believe that you know us? And so I pray for any in the room who struggle with knowing whether or not they are saved, who deal with assurance of salvation, would you give them assurance in Christ Jesus? And I pray for anybody in the room who does not know you, Jesus, I pray that they would realize that they've been brought to this place for a reason, and that is to hear the good news of Christ and to give their lives to you. So we ask all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. In my late teens, early 20s, for some years previous and post that range of age, I wrestled deeply with whether or not I was actually saved. I came to faith at a young age. Professed Christ as Savior, and then wrestled very deeply in that season. Really, it was a season of rebellion uh, where I was doing all sorts of things. I didn't really want Jesus as much as I wanted to be loved and popular and experience the things of the world. But there was a season after that that came where I really began to doubt my salvation. I really struggled with assurance of salvation. And there's a few different reasons. One, lifestyle things happening. But a couple other reasons why I wrestled with that so deeply is even while I was in ministry, by the way, like working for the church and still, like, oh man, I don't know where I'm at. Um, one, Um, I had a view, and and really kind of still deal with this, and I really don't know why, Um, I had a view of God that he was just constantly frustrated with me. I, don't really, I honestly don't know why I have that because, like, you might go, well, maybe. No, my, my parents and my family, I was born into a very loving family with very loving parents where my dad always told me he was proud of me and that he called me buddy and that he still calls me buddy and that makes me feel, like, loved and, like, my mom loved me and, like, I wrote a little note in third grade that says, I just need my mom. Like, we just had a close relationship, so, so I don't know why I just had this view of God that he was just mad at me all the time. But as a matter of fact, like, I still have to put to death thoughts that creep into my head and my heart that have to do with God not liking me very much. I just had a conversation with my wife and some friends about it. I just felt like God is just after me and like, doesn't like me. They're like, man, you got you to grow out of that. And so there's that. And, and then the other reason I think, there's a lot of different reasons, but I think the other reason that I dealt with that so heavily is because my theology at the time of sanctification was just really, really bad. And if you don't know what sanctification means, sanctification is the doctrine uh, that we uh, have been justified by faith alone in Christ. And after we're justified Christ that is saved, then over the course of our life, we will be sanctified. We will be made more like Jesus. We will be made like him. And that's a lifelong process that is painful and slow, right? More painful and more slow than we wish it would be. And it takes the course of a lifetime where we are made holy as he is holy. That's a work of the Spirit. It's a work of God's grace. And, And so at that time, I think I could have articulated that somewhat, but functionally in my heart... I was worried that I wasn't where I should have been and maybe therefore I wasn't actually saved, right? And so you kind of put these man-made like mile markers on your life of like, I should be there, I keep backsliding, I keep sinning the same sin, right? I keep looking at the same sin. Why can I beat these types of things? And instead of really understanding the work of grace and sanctification, I just thought, well, maybe that just proves that God doesn't actually love me. Now, enough about me. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. There are a number number of people in this room right now who are resonating with what I'm saying because you deal with the same thing of assurance of salvation. And maybe it's for different reasons than what I listed. Maybe you had a really hard upbringing, maybe you've experienced a lot of church hurt, maybe whatever it might be, you for whatever reason have a hard time believing that you actually are loved by God. You wrestle with your assurance of salvation. And you want to follow Jesus, you want to be faithful to Christ, but you just struggle with this. Now, I think in large parts, the reason so many of us struggle to have assurance of salvation is that the culture around us values transaction over transformation. Let me break down what I mean by that. Transaction has to do with our performance. It has to do with what we can offer. It has to do with how we behave. And so a transactional view of God is one in which we believe that God is less interested in a real, vibrant, healthy relationship with us and more concerned with our performance, what we can do for him. And so think about a transaction you make at the store. You get the good if you hand over something. If you give something, then in that moment, that's when you receive something. And so we bring that into the church, this consumeristic mindset of transactional, relationship, and we go, well, first, before God will give me his love or salvation, I have to give him a good performance. I have to behave. I have to be this, that, or the other. And so what many of us experience is not the freedom that comes with God's love, but the crushing weight of expectation and the fear of failure, because for us, God's love is determined by what we can do, but not determined by what he has chosen to do in us. So transactional Is this idea that we do things for God, and in return, God gives us salvation. Now, here's where that breaks down. I don't know about you, but I fail a lot, right? I mess up quite a bit. I am a sinner saved by grace. And so though we might be able to articulate the unconditional love of God functionally, we live as though God is constantly annoyed, constantly frustrated. He regrets saving us, and therefore he must not have. And it's hard to believe that that sort of God would actually offer us salvation, But God is not in the business of transactions as much as God is in the business of transformations. Our salvation is not rooted in what we can offer God, but in the reality that God has chosen in his wisdom and great love for us to redeem sinful people. Now, to be clear, what happens in this passage in Acts chapter 15 isn't a discussion necessarily about how we can have assurance of salvation. I want to make that very clear. There's this, this is what's known as the Jerusalem Council. This is actually, uh, many scholars would say this is the centerpiece of the book of Acts. This is kind of this shift in the narrative. It's literally both in the center of the book of Acts and also this, this uh, retelling of the history of salvation in the early church. There's this shift that takes place where the Jerusalem church, the church that was, uh, you, you know, they had the disciples who went and, and, and um, made disciples in Judea and those places. And now all of a sudden, this gospel has been extended to places where there are non Jewish people, they're Gentiles. And so there, there's this rub happening, there's this conflict happening where they're going, can Gentiles actually be welcomed into the fellowship of uh, Christians? Because for many of these, um, law abiding, strict adherence to the law, Jews, they believed that Christianity wasn't this new movement where all people were welcome, but basically an extension of Judaism throughout the world, and this was a, a Jewish movement. And so now as Peter has seen Cornelius and other Gentiles come to faith, and Paul now is preaching the gospel to Gentiles, they're wrestling with this ethnic diversity. And what do we do with people who are different than us? What do we do with these people, these non-Jews, who are coming to faith in Christ? Can they be accepted into Christian fellowship? And so there's this huge debate. And in the course of the debate, I think we get a clear picture of how people are actually saved. So you see in verse 1, there were these men, these Jews, who came down from Judea, and we're teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this is significant. Circumcision to the Jewish people is a very significant thing. If you're under, unfamiliar with that, uh, especially if you're a kid in here, you can talk to your parents later. Uh, but circumcision was this physical outward sign signifying that you belonged to the covenant people of God. You belonged to uh, the people chosen by God, Israel. And evidently, these men represented the strict Jewish viewpoint that there was no salvation apart from belonging to the covenant community, that is the people of Israel. And the only way for an outsider to be a part of that community was to take on the physical sign of the covenant, the mark of circumcision, and then to adhere to all of the precepts of the law of Moses. Often this meant adhering to man-made laws and traditions that came out of that. Now, the problem here isn't necessarily circumcision. That's a hard word for me to say for some reason. If our knee jerk reaction is, well, the Old Testament is outdated and it's just kind of crazy and it's obsolete, we just need to do away with that, I think we've missed the point. Because the covenant of circumcision given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, practiced in Deuteronomy 16, we see all throughout the Old Testament, was actually practiced by the people uh, of God and was always meant to point to a spiritual circumcision that God's people, you and I, would always bear. Listen to Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. This is Paul writing. He says, in him, that is Jesus also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So circumcision isn't necessarily an issue because it points to a greater reality that we need a circumcision of heart. We need a changed heart. But if that's not really the issue, why did Paul and Barnabas get so bent out of shape about what they were teaching? We see in verse two, it says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Translation, the no small dissension and debate meant they were getting after it. Like this, was a contr- this was an all-out controversy, all-out brawl. Like They were going after one another on this. This was a big deal, a big blow-up. Now, just as an aside, What's embedded in this story is something that I think is fairly offensive to our culture, and that's this, calling someone else's beliefs wrong. That bothers a lot of us. How can you say someone else's belief is wrong, right? Many of us, even in the room, probably would say to Paul and Barnabas, y'all just need to chill out. Like, it's really not that big of a deal, right? Let them believe what they want to believe. Let them teach what they want to teach. You believe what you want to believe. It's not really that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. Just leave them alone. They'll leave you alone. You go on your way. Let them do what they want to do. And it doesn't matter if they agree with you or not, right? And the reason that many of us feel that way is because in our culture, one of the highest values is personal autonomy or or personal freedom, Getting to do whatever it is that we want to do. That's our highest value. And personal autonomy dictates that you get to think, believe, do whatever you want, and people really don't have the right to disagree with you. And if they debate you on it or call you out, that just means that they're probably jerks, maybe bigots, but they certainly don't love you, right? Now, broadly, I want to be careful here and clear. I am absolutely grateful that we live in a country with religious liberty. It's not what I'm talking about. Religious liberty means that we can worship freely, uh, who we believe that we should worship. And so we want to protect rel- religious liberty. We're for that, right? Because why? It allows us to do things like plant churches and preach the gospel and share our faith with people. So if a Muslim group wanted to, I don't think they plant mosques, but if they wanted to start a new mosque, we would say, yes, you should be able to do that. You might go, whoa, whoa, whoa don't we disagree? With that? Yes, we do disagree with that. But if they don't get to do what they are doing, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing, right? And so we're for that. But again, I want to point out what Paul and Barnabas are actually doing. Notice that they're not taking this tact with people outside of the church. When they're preaching the gospel to nonbelievers, they're gentle and kind. They meet people where they're at. They're not debating. They're pleading with people to come to faith in Christ. But when they're talking with people within the walls of the church, they're debating with people on the inside. They contend for truth and they debate with people who claim to be the people of God. And here's my point. It matters enormously what we believe about the gospel. It matters enormously what the church, what Christians say is the truth of how people are saved. It matters enormously that we hold to the truth of God's word on this issue. And it matters for two primary reasons. Number one, God's glory is at stake. God's glory is at stake. It matters if we misrepresent him. It matters if we misrepresent his word. It matters if we say, I don't really want that. I don't really like that. I'll just kind of pick and choose. That matters because ultimately this is his truth given to us. And we don't have the freedom or the jurisdiction to change it however we wish and however we please. And the other reason that this matters is because the souls of people are at stake. To mislead people is to not love them. It matters. I think one reason that the church has lost her witness in the culture is that instead of holding fast to sound doctrine and to truth, we are tossed to and fro by the winds of whatever's palatable this week. Now, there is a way to do what I'm saying that is completely whack, right? Here's what I mean. It is possible to use truth as a weapon, It is possible to crush people like with Thor's hammer. I didn't even see the movie. I just know he has a hammer with with God's word, right? It is possible to be unloving, unkind. It is possible to use the Bible and truth and, and take the moral high ground to make everybody else feel lesser than you. That is not the way of Jesus. That's not what we're describing. But it is also possible... To hold fast to truth that is loving in a way that is kind and gentle and respectful and sincere and steadfast and long suffering. And I think that's the Jesus way for the church. And so, if you're a member of our church, I just want want you to hear me, hear my heart when it comes to the truth of God's word, when it comes to Scripture, the authority of Scripture, when it comes to the gospel you are not free to do whatever you want or to believe whatever you want to believe. And you might say, how can you tell me I'm not free to do whatever I want or believe whatever I want to believe? Well, here's why. Freedom is actually not the abundance of choices. Freedom is not the abundance of choices. What we've been duped into believing that freedom is being able to choose whatever it is we want to choose. Being able to have all this stuff on the buffet line of life and go, this is what I want. I'm going to pick and choose this. I want to do that. I want to believe this. I'm not going to believe that. That's what many of us think freedom is. Let me just use a silly example to show you that freedom is actually not the abundance of choices. Have you ever tried to pick a restaurant with your significant other or spouse? How did that go for you? That devolves into a fight pretty quickly, right? Especially if you don't have like a date plan, you just get in the car, you go, where do you wanna go? And you're like, I don't know, where do you wanna go? And then three seconds later, it's like, I don't know if we're right for each other anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is what happens. You're like, we could pick 47 chicken restaurants at Mustang Yukon, but I want that one. We can't arrive at a consensus. Why? Because there's so many choices out there that it's actually not freeing, it's constraining, and we feel shackled because we're worried that we're gonna pick the wrong thing or disappoint someone. Instead of just having the right thing presented to us for us to receive, we all of a sudden get shackled up to thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know what choice to make. Freedom is not in the abundance of choices. Freedom is belonging to Christ. And if you belong to Jesus, freedom then is to believe his word and to follow his way. It is not the abundance of choices that brings freedom. It's the abundance of grace that empowers you to follow Christ and to say no to other choices because those choices are not him. That was just an aside. Verse 3 through 5. Look at this. So being sent on their way to the church, by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders and declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who, were belonged, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and, and to order them to keep the law. So we, two, we see two distinct groups. There are those who are rejoicing at the conversion of the gentiles and then there are those who are saying they're not truly saved unless they have circumcision and they follow the law. That's the debate. How are we saved? And here's really the danger in trust or excuse me in the position of the Pharisees. They were trying to add to what Jesus has already done, right? This is a Jesus plus works version of salvation. The strict adherence to the law were mixing in their own obedience to the law with Christ's sacrificial death as the way of salvation. But here's the problem. If you add to the gospel, it ceases to be the gospel. If you add to the good news... Or if you mix something in with the good news, it ceases to be the good news. Let me, let me just use another silly example. Um, I'm a kind of a coffee snob. I'm kind of a coffee elitist. Um, not necessarily at home. At home, we get the cheap stuff, so that gets me to the place where I can drive to a place with good coffee, right? Uh, but, but I, I, and here's really what I mean by that is I like my coffee pure, unadulterated, like just black, beautiful bean juice. That's what I want. I don't want any of the extra stuff. Now, you might say, I also like coffee. I like it with cream. And I'll put some sugar in it. And then I'll put like whipped cream on it. And then some gummy bears. And then whatever it is that you put in your coffee to make it drinkable to you. Now, I'm not saying you can't drink that. I'm just saying that it's not coffee at that point, right? It's completely changed. What the drink is. You might love it, and I'm saying more power to enjoy it, but it is no longer coffee. Listen, teaching that salvation comes through what Christ has done on the cross and by our works of the flesh, obedience to the law, and strict adherence to traditions and customs. I'm not saying that people don't believe that. I'm just saying that that's not the gospel. And one, listen, one of, the most, one of the reasons that works-based version of salvation is so egregious is because it makes self the center of the gospel instead of Christ, It puts us at the center. Look at what we've done instead of look at what Christ has done. But listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, So that no one may boast. Listen, there is nothing necessarily about you in that text, about your accomplishments, nothing about how great you are, nothing about how your obedience, your goodness, or your works contributed to your salvation at all. As a matter of fact, what it says is the only thing that you really brought to the table was your sin. So, salvation is not accomplished by the work of hands, but only by the works of Christ on our behalf. Listen to this quote by a guy named Michael Horton. He says, the gospel is not a command, something to do. The gospel isn't telling us to do anything. The gospel simply comes to us announcing what Jesus has already done. So in this we see total grace for us. I don't know what your church background has been. I don't know what you've been taught about how to be saved. But here's the message of the gospel in the Bible. It's all of grace It's a message of God's unconditional love for sinful people, not based on your performance, but based on what Christ has done for you. And I just want to free you up this morning to experience God's love for you where you're at this morning. Notice what Paul says. He says, but God being rich in mercy, that just means mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. You're being uh, given mercy instead. And that, that God is rich in mercy means that he is just overflowing with it. This isn't hard for him. Because of the great love with which he loved us. And notice what comes next. Not when we obeyed perfectly. Not when we were living our best lives. Not when we were killing it with quiet times and waking up early and reading the Bible. and Not then, but when? When we were dead in our sin. When we were enemies of God. He loved us. When you were at your worst, God's love came for you. Which means, in your moments of failures, Christian, listen, if you wrestle with assurance of salvation, the moments of your failure, of your sin, where you fall, it doesn't disqualify you from God's love. God loves you just as intensely as the first day. My daughter, my four-year-old daughter, came up to me the other day, Lydia, and she gave me a big hug and a big kiss and I said, oh, babe, that was so sweet. What was that for? And very seriously and very sincerely, she said, I just wanted you to know that I love you, even when you don't look good and when you stink. <laughs> I, was, I was like dressed in my normal clothes, <laughs> sitting on the couch, just like minding my own business, and then she comes in the room to wreck my world, Right? At first, I was a bit offended. I was thinking, do I really stink? Like, what's, what's, what do I, is it, is this true of me? Like, I've been ugly for a long time, maybe my whole life. So, like, that I was okay with. I was like, okay, you got a point, but the stinking, I've been I feel like I take two showers a day. Like, I care about my hygiene. And she calls me, I don't know what to think about that. It's fairly new. But then my offense melted into gratitude. Here's why. Because my daughter was having this profound moment for me. She was telling me that her love for me was not based on some external thing that I could control and manipulate. And by the way, this is one of the reasons that unconditional love is so hard for us, right? Because we have this image of ourselves that we want to project, that we got it all together. Look at how good we are. Look at how great we are. This is why God loves me, because of what I could offer to him. And so in all of our churches, we're a whole bunch of wrecked people who are broken and busted up. But the image we try to project to the world is, look at how great we are. If you want to know why broken people don't show up to church, is because the church is projecting an image of how great they are, rather than owning their brokenness, saying we're ugly and we stink, but Jesus still loves us. You should come here with us. My daughter taught us that. Her love for me was something she just wanted to do. And I can, I can be stinky and ugly for the rest of my life. I'm so sorry, Jonna. glad I put a ring on that early. But my little girl will always love me. And there's freedom in that, right? That's why vows on your wedding day are so significant. There's freedom in that. Christian God loves you that way except a zillion times more. God chooses to love you, not because of what you have to offer, not because of your performance, not because of your goodness, and that can be offensive to those of us who want to protect our image. But he loves you because of in his wisdom he has chosen you. He has chosen to love you. And then look at verse 6 through 11. I'm going to read it just one more time. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. This is about 15 years previous when Peter went and pre, when, when Jesus uh, rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so Peter's pointing back to that time. You know, uh, excuse me. So this debate is continuing on until Peter stands up and he makes it very clear that the inclusion of the Gentiles into the Christian fellowship wasn't something that they needed to debate. And here's why. It was God's choice, not theirs. God chose to welcome the Gentiles into his covenant people. And what Peter is effectively saying is that we have no place to keep out those whom God has welcomed in. We have no right to put on to people expectations that God himself has not put on them. And this is what they were doing. Look at what Peter says in verse 10. They were putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples that even they couldn't bear. Meaning they were holding them to a standard, to an expectation that they themselves couldn't follow through with. And that is following the law perfectly. That's why they needed a savior in the first place. Listen, if we could keep the law perfectly, we would have no need for Jesus. But all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and we are desperate for a redeemer. That's what Peter is saying. Now, we might think, what a terrible thing to do, hold people to an impossible standard like that. But we need to recognize how prone we are to doing the exact same thing to people around us. And we might not say you need to be circumcised, but we do do things like you need to live a certain way. You have to act a certain way. You have to behave a certain way. You need to look a certain way. You need to do all of these different things. Basically, what we're saying is you need to become more like me before you're welcome here. And let me say it this way, how often do we tend to look down on people because they sin differently than we do? And the reason we do that is not because of a concern for righteousness as much as we crave controlling people. And then we see in verse 11, this lethal blow to the Pharisees' argument. Peter says, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It's a beautiful statement. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, you're on a different path than those sitting next to you. Your salvation is the same as theirs. It came through the grace of the Lord Jesus, not anything you contributed. And there's a few implications of this. Number one, your salvation is not based on your performance. I've said this several times. This means when you are struggling with assurance, you don't need to go through the Rolodex of your failures and your successes and your victories and your accomplishments and your sin. You need to meditate on the love of God for you displayed at the cross of Calvary. And I'm not advocating for cheap grace, by the way. I believe that if you know Jesus, you truly know Jesus, then the Spirit of God will cause you to desire Christ. The Spirit of God will cause you, will empower you to obey, and he will set you on a course towards righteousness. There will be growth, there will be repentance, there will be fruit. But order matters here. The gospel is not obey and then receive salvation. The gospel has received the free gift of salvation, and that sets you on a path towards obedience where true freedom is. But so often we forget that we used to be outsiders, and then we start putting on people the expectation to obey perfectly before they're welcomed in. And that's just not the gospel. There should be obedience for those who believe. There should be follow through. There should be commitment. There should be devotion to Jesus. There should be fruit born. There should be repentance in areas of failure. But for those who don't know Christ, the invitation is to come and drink and to be satisfied. Your salvation is not based on your performance. It's based on God's love for you. Your salvation is based on God's love for you, which means that God is not frustrated with you. God isn't annoyed with you. God doesn't regret saving you. Actually, he has an unstoppable love for you. And then the third implication is this. It is not the most put together that will be saved. It is those with the deepest understanding of their need to be put together that will be saved. It's those that many of us who grew up in church are tempted to look at and say, not them who are the candidates of God's grace. And the reason is because salvation is a gift of God's grace. Here's, here's how I want to close. There's, I don't know if you know a guy named Brennan Manning. He's not alive anymore, but he wrote a book many years ago called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And, and just to be clear, I don't agree doctrinally with everything Brennan Manning has ever said or wrote. As a matter of fact, this passage that I'm going to share with you, I didn't put it on the screen because it's fairly long. Um, there's this passage, like the fleshly legalistic side of me just goes, no, this can't be true. Uh, but, but, like, experiencing the grace and love of God, just, it's actually really beautiful what he writes. So I'm going to read this. This is from his book, Ragamuffin Gospel. Again, just listen and follow along that way. He writes, Because salvation is by grace through faith, I believe that among the countless number of people standing in front of the throne and in front of the Lamb, dressed in white robes and holding palms in their hands, see Revelation 7-9, I shall see the prostitute from the Kit Kat Ranch in Carson City, Nevada, who tearfully told me that she could find no other employment to support her two-year-old son. I shall see the woman who had an abortion and is haunted by guilt and remorse, but did the best she could, faced with grueling alternatives." I shall see the businessman besieged with debt who sold his integrity in a series of desperate transactions, the insecure clergyman addicted to being liked and who never challenged his people from the pulpit and longed for unconditional love, the sexually abused teen molested by his father and now selling his body on the street, who, as he falls asleep each night after his last trick, whispers the name of the unknown God he learned about in Sunday school. And we ask, but how? How will you see those people there? Then the voice says, they have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There they are, there we are, the multitude who so wanted to be faithful, who at times got defeated, soiled by life and bested by trials, wearing the bloodied garments of life's tribulations, but through it all clung to faith. My friends, if this is not good news to you, you have never understood the gospel of grace you can have assurance of salvation because you can be sure that the blood of Jesus is enough. It is not by the works of the flesh that we are saved, but by the blood of the Lamb. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Well Church Sermons. You can join us any Sunday at Canyon Ridge Intermediate School 3600 South Sarah Road in Mustang, Oklahoma.